Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today we're going to be talking about the concluding chapter of the new Star Wars trilogy, Rise of Skywalker, as well as Greta Gerwig's new adaptation of Little Women. And stick around because we're going to have a special guest to talk about the true event of the holiday movie season, Cats. Cats? Welcome to Film Club. All right, so Alex, we've got a movie event that is technically 40 years in the making coming out this <laughs> yeah. week, although Star Wars movies come out so often now, it doesn't quite have the same weight as it used to when there's a new Star Wars movie in theaters. Nevertheless, Rise of Skywalker has a lot that it needs to wrap up. Yeah, there's a lot riding on it. I would say that it's a film that feels like it has a lot riding on it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, yeah. This is the concluding chapter of the trilogy that J.J. Abrams started mm -hmm. with The Force Awakens mm -hmm. in 2015. Also following up The Last Jedi, right. which, much to my personal chagrin, continues to be a hot topic of conversation <laughs> <laughs> Yes, to it's this been day. endlessly relitigated. Absolutely. Uh, very divisive. I watched this one and I think this is not a film that's going to be divisive. Um, really? I kind of walked away feeling that it will be divisive in the sense that it sort of tries to play to all factions of the fandom. And so I think everyone's going to see what they want to see in it and then argue about what they saw. I felt like watching this that this was basically two plus hours of obligations being fulfilled. Oof. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> we can't really talk much about the plot because no. you will come to our homes and murder us. Yes. <laughs> I will say that this has been spoiled by the trailer. Emperor Palpatine is back. Palpatine is back. And that kind of launches the plot into motion. The movie opens with Kylo Ren, played again by Adam Driver, basically going out to this place in space where this signal is coming from. Yeah, it's sort of like a dark side Atlantis in that it's this mystical place that's not on any map mm -hmm. and it's only vaguely known where it might be. Yeah, I think it's one element of a plot that's sort of constantly sending the characters from one planet to another. I mean, I think that's pretty typical of a Star Wars movie. This time around, they do have, you know, our core trio has more screen time together than they do in either Last Jedi or Force Awakens. Right. And that dynamic is pretty well established by now. That element of camaraderie that they establish, it is nice to see these characters together. Mm -hmm. I think the characters are one of the stronger aspects of these new Star Wars films. Absolutely, yeah. I think most people, even people who don't necessarily love the new films or even The Last Jedi, tend to respond pretty well to this new cast of characters. And that's a key thing for them to figure out, and they did do that successfully because, you know, the core trio of Han, Luke, and Leia is at the mm -hmm. heart of the original trilogy as well, and it's something that's a little bit missing from the prequel trilogy, the sort of, like, Big lovable time. gang. Big time, yeah. yeah. I mean, the prequel trilogy is all, like, tariff-discussing Jedi boys. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know? yes. <laughs> that movie was, like, in dire need of a Han Solo. Oh, yes. Or those big, movies were. Yeah, big time. And I feel like these new ones have several Han Solos. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they've got more Han Solos than they know what right, to do. Exactly. I just think there's an element of desperation about this film that hangs over it. I felt watching a lot of it, and this includes the action scenes, which mm -hmm. are not necessarily especially innovative or especially different than something we've seen no, in, in past really Star Wars not. films. I mean, a lot of what you're saying is true of the film as a whole. It's satisfying enough, but I definitely got the impression that this film was J.J. Abrams looking at every one of us in the theater personally and going, is this okay? Yeah, it's very are, desperate are, to please. Are you okay? Yes, so eager to please that it ends up kind of sabotaging itself in the narrative. Every time it kind of teases is something like bold or even dark, it walks it back pretty consistently. Well, that includes some of the elements Johnson introduced yeah. in, in the second film, which, as we mentioned, is very divisive with Star Wars fans, partially because it dared to take some of the characters in new directions. Mm -hmm. It also dared to disregard elements of the mythology. And I think that this is a movie that has heard your complaints about that and is like, we're here to, to rectify those. God, it's such a customer service representative of a movie, totally. <laughs> when you put it that way. Yeah. And I think there's an element of all conclusions including chapters of sagas have this kind of problem where what you 
end up watching is, is just sort of falling action. Mm -hmm. It's like we have loose ends to tie up. We have to bring this thing in for a landing. It, it was a problem I think that some people had even with Return of the Jedi. It's, right. it, it's, it's interesting to note that Star Wars fans have been complaining about Star Wars movies since Return of the Jedi. It's also, you know? uh, yeah, so definitely part of the Star Wars experience. Yes. <laughs> well, what do you think about the fact that the initial follow-up to Star Wars was the Star Wars holiday special? Yeah. Oh, you're right. It goes all the way back to that. Yeah. People have been dissatisfied with Star Wars sequels since, since basically the start. Since the first movie, everything that's come after that, people have been like, what? But this, this sort of compounds the normal problem of a saga conclusion in that it also is reckoning with all of the complaints about the last movie. Yeah. So it feels like a film that is desperate to stick that landing in a way that's going to satisfy the most number of people, but it ends up being something that, uh, to me, feels like it takes no risk whatsoever. Especially uh, narratively. Right, yeah. It's I, I think it ends up sort of hitting a lot of very predictable notes. Yeah, there's even a few kind of, even on a more micro level with some of the dialogue, there are a couple lines in this movie that could be interpreted as dings at The Last Jedi, mm -hmm. or you could also explain it in a way as, oh, no, it's not actually ding, it applies to the plot because of this. And I think that's very emblematic of Abrams' approach to this film. Abrams' is... approach to everything, I would say, <laughs> oh, in a yeah, way. Okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Abrams was brought in to, to the Star Wars universe, I think, because his function on that first film was to say, we know you didn't like the prequels. We're here to, to reset, to give you what you like about Star Wars again. Yeah. Fans had a similar reaction, albeit for entirely different reasons, to The Last Jedi. Mm -hmm. So here Abrams is again to play cleanup again. Yeah. You know? The question is whether or not it really needed clean up. I guess that's the, the I, larger I, I debate. I don't think it needed clean up. I don't have a problem with The Last Jedi or Solo. It's a very lonely island to be on in terms <laughs> of opinions about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> to me, the, the most interesting thing about these new films, and certainly the most interesting thing about the, this last one, is this subtextual element, which is that these movies are all about grappling with the legacy of Star Wars. Yeah. All of the characters in the film are essentially uh, exist in the shadow of the first trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a big element of that with the villain, again played by Adam Driver, who's and somebody who's basically been struggling to find his own role in this story. Yeah, and I, I think the character of Kylo Ren is really cleverly done because, yeah, he plays that role and he also sort of serves as a stand-in for these angry, toxic fans yeah. in a lot of ways. There were some things that I did like quite a bit, but they were elements in what I felt overall was a very mixed bag. There were some parts where I felt that the CGI backgrounds were very obvious and spoiled the illusion. But there are other parts where there are, you know, these big fantasy, obvious CGI locations that I thought were really cool. A desert planet and some fun new aliens. I yeah. I always like the elaborate practical effect creature design. How many desert elements. plants do we really need at this point? There's we only three kinds. <laughs> yeah. There's like desert, <laughs> well, there's ice, and forest. <laughs> and city sometimes. Oh yeah, city sometimes. <laughs> That's all I got. Okay, well on that note, for you personally, you know, since everyone had what kind of sees what they want to see in Star Wars, did you find it satisfying personally? No, I didn't find it satisfying, no. But partially that's because I felt like it was so relentlessly attempting to hit the beats that mm -hmm. it thought that I and or, or the larger audience wanted. I think at this point in the in the series, I would have liked a little bit more surprise. I mean, mm -hmm. again, I think that there, that is the, the sort of concluding chapter problem, which is that all the mystery and urgency is gone. We're just sort of bringing things in for a landing. But I did not find the place that this movie necessarily leaves these characters to be especially interesting. I thought it was conclusive enough, but overall, as the film wore on, the sort of people-pleasing concessions that they make in the narrative definitely were deflating to me. So I think at the end, I ended up with a feeling of like, well, that was nice, instead of, you know, be feeling energized and excited. 
All right, so Dowd, we've got you know our own special AV Club kind of blockbuster in theaters this Christmas, <laughs> and that's a new Greta Gerwig that's movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now you're a huge fan of Lady Bird, mm-hmm. as am I. How does Little Women compare to Lady Bird? I think it's pretty great. I mean, yeah. I, I don't like it quite as much as Lady Bird, mm-hmm. but that's a relative distinction in this case. You know, I, I actually think Lady Bird is one of the better films of this quickly elapsing decade. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great sophomore move for her, sort of. You know, yeah, it's definitely a move into. I mean, I want to say less personal territory, but she definitely puts her own personal stamp on Mm -hmm. the material, which I think does give it a distinct point of view that brings it into this era, you know? Totally. I I mean, I actually think one of the more remarkable things about the film, it's a fairly faithful adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's novel. Yes, in Uh, terms of content, if not in structure. Exactly. The structure is radically different. Right. So she's kind of sticking pretty close to the details of the plot, but making it her own in ways both stylistically, structurally, as as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and in terms of what she's choosing to, to key into and focus on yeah. in, in this material. I think even the way that she structures it to rearrange the plot foregrounds the themes that she's getting at. Right. Because Little Women, you can play it as a romance because the mm-hmm. Mark sisters all have their different love interests and stuff. Mm-hmm. And some adaptations do really play it that way. But this version of Little Women really foregrounds, first of all, Joe's ambition to be a writer, but also, you know, all the characters have their own goals and dreams in life. And I think mm-hmm. this version emphasizes that over more like will they won't they with Joe and Lori. Totally. We follow the March sisters who come from a impoverished family, you could say. Lower well, middle sort class. Of, lower, lower middle, middle class. Because yeah, they have a rich aunt yeah, uh, in this and film played by Meryl Streep. Well, the book and the movie place them firmly between the rich next door neighbors and the poor family that lives on the other side of them. They're right in the middle. You're right. That's yeah. true. Geographically even. Yeah, yeah geographically totally. it's like rich, middle class, poor. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good point. The novel follows them over a period of time, maybe six or seven years or something. It's like preteen to young adulthood. Right, but what Gerwig does is she sort of takes it out of order chronologically. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the film takes place with them as teenagers, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of interspersed with scenes of them years later. And what that does is it takes certain things that happen in the novel, certain romantic developments, and it makes us aware of them earlier. Our knowledge informs the way that we watch those earlier scenes now. We know where certain relationships are going. Absolutely, it changes the thrust of the plot and even the tone a little bit is changed by the rearranged structure. Now, when the movie first starts and you realize that this is what Gerwig is doing, Mm -hmm. I had a moment where when the flashbacks first started happening, I was like, wait, what year is it? But pretty quickly, I found that to be resolved. How did you feel about that? I agree. I was concerned at first because the first time we jump back, because I believe it starts in the later portion of the story and then takes us back. So we're like, oh, there's going to be a flashback structure. Mm -hmm. The first time we go back, it gives us a a date stamp like seven years earlier or something. Uh But then the next time it does it, it doesn't. Yeah, it just trusts you to follow it. like, you know what, we're going to be going back and forth. We're not going to tell you every time. And, mm-hmm. and I was concerned at first that I was going to be lost by that. Yeah. But Gerwig does a lot of things to let us know instantly what time period we're in. Yeah. Some of it has to do with the quality of the light and the colors she's using. Well, and also that's an emotional thing because in scenes where, you know, everyone's happy and together and mm-hmm. full of love for each other, the light is very glowing yeah. and warm. There's this warm quality about yeah. it. Yeah. And when tragedy, you know, strikes their lives, when they're in a bad place, the light is very thin and pale. Totally. I think the other thing is the performances, too, mm-hmm. I think tell us almost instantly where we are in this story. Florence Pugh plays one of the sisters, and she's, she's excellent. I think I think it might be the performance of the movie, although everybody's good in this. Amy is another character who, you know, she's can be kind of bratty sometimes, mm-hmm. but Florence Pugh really makes you understand that that comes from her frustration at not being able to break out the way that she wants to in the world. Right. Well, yeah. and beyond that, because of the structure, we're constantly seeing 
seeing the dichotomy between who she is as a teenager and who mm-hmm. she is as a young woman. Oh, right. And the minute the camera is on her, I know exactly what time period we're in. Yeah. yeah. I know when she's playing a teenager versus when she's playing a young adult. Mm -hmm. And I think the movie does that a lot. And I think the movie does that with actors. I don't think it's an accident that some of the core roles in this film are played by people who started their career when they were younger. Oh, like Emma Watson also. Emma Watson as well plays another one of the sisters. And she's going back to playing a teenager, but also playing a young woman. And the same with Cersei Ronan as well, um, who plays Joe. Yeah, what'd you think of her lead performances, Joe? I think she's very good. I think that she threads the needle that anybody playing this character needs to thread between being kind of stubborn and frustrating at Mm -hmm. times, being you're on her side at all times. Well, you know, just those strong characterizations is, I think, a big part of what has made Little Women last as long as it has is that it's a lot like the relationship that the reader could have with their own siblings where it drives them completely crazy. Like a lot of these characters have things about them that can be very annoying, but in the end, you know, you can't help but love them, which is, you know, yeah. very much like being a member of a family. Totally, yeah. <laughs> and I think that one of the things that really works about this film is that it feels modern in spirit without mm-hmm. feeling anachronistic in any way. Yeah. Um, I think that Gerwig, who, I mean, again, we talked about Lady Bird, her mm-hmm. last film was a film very much about about being a teenager at the turn of the millennium, uh, which isn't so different than being a teenager now, really. And I think that she looks at this material and recognizes maybe herself, maybe recognizes elements of her own life, but also just elements of being a young woman in America in that book and in modern life. And Little Women, you know, just it's been a big part of American girlhood for a long time, Mm -hmm. 150 years, you know. I read Little Women when I was a little kid and so did my mom and so did her mom and it goes back and back. And I think that the film also is so old-fashioned Hollywood movie in the best way in that it's not overtly artistically challenging like even the boldest decision which is reordering the structure is still very easy to follow yeah you know it's there's nothing that's like confusing about it at all but the craft is like really really high totally. yeah and I mean this is a studio film I mean it's opening wide on Christmas yeah and it's not inaccessible and I think this is a movie that a lot of people will probably right. connect to but it's also made with a craft and artistry exactly. and, and and a passion that you don't always see in studio filmmaking right it's It's a great example of how something that's successful and entertaining doesn't have to be junk. Right. I feel like this is one of those films where you could take any shot, any frame, and just hang it up on a wall because it's just perfect, provided that you're decorating a CIA black site somewhere. (laughs) This thing is ugly. Singular in its ugliness, I would say. (laughs) And I think a lot of people got that sense when the first trailer came out and was, let's say, greeted with scorn. Horror, I would say. People were repelled by it. Yeah, and I think for a lot of viewers, really the question is, do the cats look as bad as they look in the trailer? I think they do. And in fact, over the course of its two hours or something, I never really got used to looking at them. Yeah, this is, this is not one of those things, kind of like the de-aging effects in The Irishman. They may be imperfect, but you get used to them, and they're conceptually of a piece with the film. This is consistently ugly, yeah. right? So what they did is they filmed live action actors, and then with the help of the cutting edge of digital fur technology, as they referred to it, they gave them coats of fur, They gave him ears, they gave him tails. This is an expensive movie, but the effects sometimes look unfinished, especially with characters in the background. There's like noticeable drops in resolution and animation quality. I mean, I would say that the problem might be that they are finished and this is exactly how the movie wants to look. (laughs) It looks looks so bad. They've got normal fingers, normal toes, but kind of fur. It's like something out of a nightmare. Every director likes to say that they're putting their dream, their vision up on the screen, but this feels like a bad dream. This feels like this was (laughs) induced by something. So this is an, an adaptation of 
very popular, very famous musical, Cats. Cats is the musical that kicked off the whole tourist chasing mm -hmm. multi-million dollar mega musical trend. The way we think about Broadway today yeah, is yeah. these giant blockbuster yeah, productions. That run do. for years right. and years. Cats ran for 18 years on Broadway. Have you ever seen the show on stage? I have not seen the Me show neither. on stage. And here's yeah. the thing. If you listen to it, it's not a great musical. No. It's got one great number, memory, it's the famous one, and then a whole bunch of songs that sound exactly the same and consist of cats introducing each other for two acts. It's like basically the movie is cats walking into frame and describing what it's like to be a cat. Yes, that is what this, the music This, this particular cat. It's, it's yeah. a musical with no real plot to speak of, yeah. no main character, and in the original production, just one set. And then that's basically entirely supposed to be carried by choreography and the dancing and the stagecraft and all this other stuff that doesn't really translate to this yeah. film. So you're forced to rely on the, its qualities as a musical. Or as a bizarre object, you know? Yeah. And that's sort of what got me through. Yeah, they, well, <laughs> they, they, they rework the script a little bit, so, mm -hmm. and they add dialogue for certain characters, because originally- the, It's the sung music, through on stage. Yeah, 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 on stage, no spoken dialogue, entirely sung through. The cast here, it's kind of a mix of celebrities and actual professional dancers. Yeah. I mean, the dancing is kind of cut to shreds. I don't really yeah. understand what's the point of casting principals from the Royal Ballet if you're going to replace their entire bodies with digital cat bodies. Right, basically. and cut it in such a way yeah, also and, and where we're never we're never getting a sense of, of how good these people are as performers. And then, you know, you've got people like Taylor Swift who mm -hmm. also wrote an original song for this with Andrew Lloyd Webber that isn't very good. Ray Winstone pops up <laughs> yeah. as a cat. Idris Elba as a cat. I mean, that's really kind Idris of... Elba's like the tough cat. Yeah, he's, he's the, the evil. The he's piece. McCavity, the evil cat. Who's magical also. Again, having not seen Cats, I did not realize that there was just straight up magic in this. That element is there in addition to the, the spectacle of talking and singing Cats. Ian McKellen, who I actually think commits to I was so touched by his conviction he's in so, it. He's, he's so like, I'm going to be a cat. Yeah, you know, he really commits he to He really that. commits to the role of playing Gus the theater cat. So the lyrics of Cats the musical, they mostly come from Old Possum's book of practical cats, a, a book of whimsical verse that T.S. Eliot published in 1939. And I feel like the difference between McKellen and everyone else is that McKellen is performing Eliot, whereas everyone else is singing Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> like he commits to that text. Yeah. But then you've got like Rebel Wilson, who's basically on hand to poorly perform one musical number and then just hang around in the background saying things like, who let the cat out of the bag? Yeah, there's a very I, I'm not sure confusing. Why would that particular metaphor exist in a world of cats? Yeah. Why would like cat got your tongue exist in a world of cats? <laughs> oh, I mean, there's a lot of questions. So the plot, quote unquote, of cats is you have these cats, they're called Jellicle cats. They introduce themselves in song and dance numbers and then the elder cat, old Deuteronomy, is played by Judy Dench in this film, usually a male role. Picks one of them to ascend to the heavy side layer and be reborn. Usually this is depicted on stage as a staircase or some kind of UFO thing that rises. Here it's a chandelier that's attached to a balloon and that doesn't really help the impression that this is basically a ritual sacrifice <laughs> that they're making, like that it's just that like, it's like all these, who gets to die. Yeah, which which of these cats is going to be sent off on a weather balloon? <laughs> oh, 
Uh, the film's directed by Tom Hooper, who did the big Les Mis adaptation a few years ago. A filmmaker who uh, has always had kind of tacky aesthetic, you know? Yeah. His big breakthrough was The King's Speech, a movie that had a lot of very unmotivated stylistic choices, just big expanses of negative space and fisheye lens. Yeah. So in some respects, he kind of makes sense for but he restrains a project himself, like this. he restrains himself yeah. here. You don't get the weird Tom Hooper shot compositions where there's just like three quarters of the screen is empty behind someone's head. Yeah. This is shot mostly with, it'll be just like a handheld camera that's next to the cats. Yeah. It's not really shot with an eye for the choreography, but it's made with some degree of care and some degree of skill, and to me that only enhances the silliness of it. Seeing like the juxtaposition between just how damn silly this material is, mm -hmm. and the just the amount of money and time and care that went into its its production. All right, everybody, that's it for another episode of Film Club. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, like, share, just anything you can to help get the word out about the podcast. Yep, uh, and this will be our last episode of the season, so. So we'll be back next year with new ones. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.